and being in North Dakota and still in the making friends stage of, of transplanting. Um, he's, he's definitely feeling it a lot more than I am right now, and I'm worried for him. Okay. So, prayers, please. Okay. All right. Thank you, Antonia. Okay. Any others before we go to pray? Hello, my name is Kyle Houchin. Um, so just this last week, my girlfriend, um, she um, started subconsciously cutting again. Um, so due to like trauma and stuff like that in the past, she kind of just phases out once in a while and then comes back to and she has like a knife in her hand or something like that and she'll scratch up the back of her arm pretty well. So just prayers over that and hope that you know, that stress and stuff like that can recede from her, so. All right, Kyle, we will pray for her. Pray for her. <clears throat> okay, if that is it, uh, this is what we're going to do today. Uh, I'm just going to lead us in a time of prayer. And, uh, you know, as we've often say, uh, the guy up front is not the magic prayer genie or anything. Uh, we all are. <laughs> So as I lead, I'm just going to ask you to pray along uh, with these. But I would also ask this, that uh, maybe just some of us would gather around, uh, that we would gather around Antonia as we pray for her. And, uh, and if you're okay, maybe a hand on the shoulder just to transfer uh, that idea of laying our hands uh, for God's blessing upon people. Uh, if someone gather around Isaac as we pray, and uh, if some would stand with Kyle, uh, during this time as we pray. I uh, really, really would like for that to happen. So let's be the body of Christ. Uh, let's pray. Let's gather at God's throne, but let's gather around each other uh, as we do that. So if you would, uh, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we are thankful, we are grateful for you, who you are, and, and all that you have done since the creation of this entire cosmos. Lord, you have been at work in relationship, relationship with the Spirit, relationship with the Son, and uh, with the Father all, all together there, and you've created us to walk in that relationship with you and with one another. And Lord, we come to you now first in confession, uh, understanding that our own sin, our own wanting to replace you with ourselves, our wanting to put our desires before your will has wrecked all of those relationships. And, and we confess, Lord, that that's who we are, that's what we do. But at the same time, Lord, we, we rejoice in thanks and in praise for you bringing rescue to us to restore these relationships. And that rescue came as Jesus Christ, dying on a cross for our sins. So God, right now we, we, we receive that and we give thanks for that. And, and maybe, Lord, there's some that, that do not understand that missing puzzle piece of the brokenness of life and the wreckage of our existence and, and how Christ is the redeemer of all of that. I pray, God, that your spirit gives understanding to that and opens uh, hearts and opens minds to that. And this would be a place where that rescue occurs. 
and that this would be the day where salvation enters in uh, to our lives. Lord, we thank you for uh, the reports that we have received. We thank you that uh, Luke's health and his healing has been progressing, and we know there's still a road ahead of him. So we pray with him and we pray for him, Lord, that, uh, that Lord, that recovery will be full and complete. Uh, help him to have endurance as he goes through physical therapy. Um, help, Lord, to, for communication to uh, continue to clear up. Uh, thank you for the work that he did in making that happen. Uh, Lord, we continue to pray for Tatiana's family and for those uh, coming over and those still left behind. Uh, Lord, we pray for that whole situation and ask for you to do what we cannot do and to step in and bring peace. Uh, but Lord, for those that we're able to receive, we pray that we receive them well. Lord, we pray that they know coming here uh, that they are entering into an atmosphere, a climate, uh, and a culture where they are welcome and where they are loved. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would show us how we can come alongside and help in this time. And Lord, we pray for uh, Joey's family and uh, Joey himself as they grieve the loss of his grandfather. Uh, we pray especially, Lord, for you to bring comfort uh, to his grandma as she is going to miss him most. And so, Lord, uh, there's a lot of us that understand that hurt and that loss, and, uh, and we miss people. We have days where we're doing okay, and then we have days where we feel like we might be moving a little backwards in our grief. But, Lord, uh, we come to you, and, and we ask that you be our anchor during our grief. When, when our sorrow tosses about, Lord, may we hold tight to you and know that you hold tight to us. Uh, stabilizing us and bringing joy and happiness in spite of the circumstances that might surround us. And now, Lord, we pray for Antonia, and we ask God for your blessing upon her father. We pray that he will get answers uh, this week concerning his health so that they, they at least have an idea of what to do and he's not just struggling and suffering with the uncertainties of all of this. Thank you for what you have done in his life, and we pray, God, that most of all, you would do healing in his heart, healing in his soul, that he would come to a full knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we also pray for Antonia and for Will as they're separated for a short time, and long distance is hard, and they're missing each other. And there's a grief in that, too. So Lord, we pray that where there is sorrow, you will bring in joy, that you will do a work in this in-between time, and that you will connect Will to good friends, and that you will connect him to strong friends, and that, Lord, he will be built up uh, in his own faith as, as he's apart for a little while. We pray that Antonia grows, too, so that when they come together, they will experience that growth with one another. And Lord, we lift up Kyle as he cares for his girlfriend, and he cares for what's going on. And Lord, there's a, there's a hurt in the soul that's being manifested by pain in the flesh. And so, God, whatever hurt there is, we pray for healing. We pray that your spirit right now would just speak into her heart and let her know she's loved. Let her know that she's significant. Let her know that she matters to you enough that you would go to the cross for her. But also, Lord, we pray you will surround her and, and Kyle with others that will, will help and encourage and, uh, and guide during uh, during these times. Lord, we live in a dark world, but you 
are the light of this world. And we just pray today that that light will shine a little bit brighter on each and every one of us. Lord, there's requests maybe that weren't shared. There's hurts maybe that are uh, being kept in. Uh, there's confusion or frustration that someone might be dealing with. Um, and, and at the same time, Lord, there might be just these joys that you've been bringing into lives, and, and we don't even know how to express our, our feelings about those things. Uh, here we are, Lord, uh, with wounded hearts, uh, broken souls, uh, shattered dreams, all of those things, and we look to you and to you alone to be our Redeemer, uh, to be our Savior. Uh, to be our sanctifier, uh, to be our light and our joy in a dark and weary world. And now as we prepare to go into your word, we ask God that you would just release us and relieve us of these burdens that we carry so that we're free to do one thing, and that is for to receive, uh, to receive your spirit speaking through your word into our very hearts and lives that we might know you, and in knowing you, know the way that we ought to go. And we ask that you'd be with our pastor now, and that your spirit would rest mightily upon Evan as he comes to share your word. And bless him, and uh, bless him and all the efforts and the work that he puts forth for your kingdom today. May he rejoice in the fruit of your spirits working through him. We ask in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you for uh, doing that. We'll give you a little time to regroup back in your seats and chance for Evan to come back up too. Thank you, thank you, you guys. Can thank you guys for, for moving around, for praying for one another as we continue to remind ourselves that we don't just come here to watch church. We come here to be the church, and that means praying for one another, praying with one another. Um, we have this opportunity to access the presence of God. We don't take that for granted. So thank you. Thanks for leaning into that. And it's now that we're going to transition into our teaching time. And today will actually be our last day in the Abraham series as we've been tracking with Abraham and Sarah, the father of faith since October, looking at what it means to grow in faith. How do we grow closer to God? How do we grow in trust and faith in Jesus? And today is going to be the last day in the Abraham series. And also about halfway through, we're going to transition into our next series. Um, and in our next series, one of the things that we're going to look at are some of the, the difficult, obscure passages of the Bible. Um, and, you know, we've gone through some difficult passages of the Bible together over the last year. Um, and some passages are difficult because they talk about controversial issues. Um, or just uncomfortable issues, or some passages are difficult because they're a challenge to the way that we live, and it's really a challenge to conform our hearts and minds to Christ. And so we've gone through some of those. Um, but some of the passages, like the one we're going to read today, they're difficult just because they're a little weird, um, or because they just seem to not really tell us anything. We read through them and we go, okay, what was the point of that? Um, and we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, training, and rebuking. Um, but oftentimes we come up to certain parts of the Bible and we wonder, like, okay, but not like all Scripture, not like this part, right? Like this part, you know, we can just skip it. Um, some of the genealogies, some of just the little details, like we read through that and we go, what's kind of the point? Um, and what we're going to look at, like the ones we look at today, is just how 
all scripture is God-breathed, and so these are passages that we don't just want to skip. Um, they're the passages that usually you just move along um, in sermon series, a lot of pastors, a lot of churches, you know, you'll just skip a text or two, and I think that's totally fine to do, but I don't think we always do you, we do us any favors um, skipping some of these difficult, obscure passages. Um, and so, what I really view my job as your pastor to do is to help you to follow Jesus, um, and it doesn't do a lot of favors to, to not always equip you to deal with some of those difficult, obscure passages. I really want to equip you to be able to interact with God's Word, with Jesus, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, not just when you're here listening to me. I want to teach you how to interact with some of these passages and how to handle the obscure. Um, and so that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at a story from Abraham's life that we had skipped, but we're going to come back to it. We skipped it on purpose because we're going to show you how to handle these weird, obscure passages and how exactly do we grow in faith when these passages that we read don't exactly thrill us or seem that exciting. Um, but before we do that, before we figure out how to approach some of these obscure passages, I just want us to have a bit of an understanding of what the Bible is um, to begin with. Um, and really, most people approach the Bible with one of two presuppositions, um, and there are going to be kind of two on here. Oh, my, my, my formatting got messed up. The human book should be, be way over here. Um, but essentially, there are two presuppositions. One is that the Bible is a God book, right? It's inspired from front to back given to us by God, and the other presupposition is that it's a human book, right? Some smart guys put it together, and it's just a collection of fun reading material. These are kind of the two dominant presuppositions. Now, within number one, the Bible is a God book. Um, we have 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's you guys, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I fall into that category. I believe the Bible is a God book. Um, and I presuppose that it's divine. It's inspired. That's what my faith has passed on to me. Um, I believe that the Bible has claims within itself and then evidence outside of itself that back that up. And so I go, okay, I'm going to go with what the Bible says. And that's going to lead me to make some certain conclusions. And it's going to lead me to read the Bible in a certain way. Um, and of course, within kind of the God book side, there are a lot of fractions or a lot of disagreements. Um, on essentially what it means. Um, but that's the camp that you'll hear of often that'll say, well, you know, the Bible says, and it's authoritative, and believing that it is a God book. Um, but oftentimes, we can go a little too far into that side, and it can become like a teeter-totter, where if we just go too far and all in on the Bible just being a God book, that sometimes it's taught that, you know, you could just open it up, and because it's a God book, because it's written by God, like, the Bible can just wash over you, and it'll just make sense right away. And oftentimes, we probably read the Bible like this little kid is studying, you know. We open up the Word, and we just think, you know, because it's a God book, it's just going to make sense, it's just going to wash over, it's just going to change us. And so, if we go too far, essentially, on that teeter-totter towards the God book, then this can be some of the ways that we will often read the Bible. We'll read the Bible just like that, where we just expect that it will do this on its own. And what happens all too often, what I am just, like, sick of seeing, is people expecting this and then being really discouraged or just letting their faith fall apart because they open the Bible and then they read like a genealogy or a really boring section of scripture or like Song of Solomon or something, and they're like, well, this, I don't really know what this is doing, so God must not be working in my life. He's not like just opening my mind to see the value of this. 
And we have to understand that it is a God book, but that does require a little something out of us. Um, but so that's one presupposition. The other presupposition is, of course, it's a human book, right? That it's not a God book. Um, and many people simply view the Bible as just a historic piece of literature, right? There's no power in it or don't expect anything to happen. Um, and sometimes even Christians can go a little too far on this human book spectrum where instead of just expecting God and the Holy Spirit to work through the words, we'll kind of put all of the effort on ourselves. That in order for anything to happen, it's all about your study. It's all about your technique. It's all about how you approach the Bible. And I can fall into this camp as well. I believe it's a God book, but sometimes I can lean into too much of the human book where I base all of what God can do in it through my own intellect, through my own habits, through my own study. And essentially that's doing the same thing as those who would say, well, it's not written by God, it's just a book you can study. And so what we have to understand is that it is a God book, but it's a God book written by humans, right? Okay, so the Bible is fundamentally a God book, not a man book, but it didn't just fall out of the sky. God used people to write this book, right? So God authored the book. They're his ideas. They're his words. But then men wrote it down, right? And it, it's kind of a tricky situation, but God used humans to write the Bible. And so what we understand is that when they wrote the Bible, they were, they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meaning that these were God's words. But yet, it was penned by humans. And it's interesting to know the authors who were writing the Bible, they knew what they were writing. It wasn't like their eyes just rolled back in their head and they were in some kind of trance and they were just like, this is what God wants. And they just like penned it out. No, they were fully conscious. They knew what they were writing. But yet they were God's words. The Holy Spirit was guiding their thoughts as they wrote. And so, knowing that it's a God book, that it's living and active, that these are God's words, but knowing that it was actually written by humans as well, then we have to actually look into, okay, well, what did these human authors mean? And that will actually help us to understand what God meant. And so, when we want to know what does God mean in this passage, when we want to know what does Genesis mean, we have to look at, well, what did the author of Genesis mean? When Paul writes a letter to the Galatians, what did Paul mean by that? And when we figure out the author's intent, we figure out God's intent, because God was working through these authors. He didn't just surpass their consciousness and just move their arm in a way. And so this is kind of the framework that we have to start with. It's a God book. It's not a man book. But men wrote the book, right? Their thoughts were guided by the Holy Spirit. And so this is important to understand because as we approach passages of the Bible that seem to not feel maybe quite as divine as others, um, this will happen a lot. And I know some of you have probably had this experience where, like, you're reading the Bible, and it's just not thrilling you to the extent that you would like, you know? Sometimes we can read this thing, and we'll have this great experience. And then sometimes, like in the story we're going to read today, you won't have this great, powerful experience, right? You're reading it, and, you know, God's not really pressing all, you know, the tingly buttons. You're not really getting all the butterflies in your butter basket when you're reading all of these passages, you know? But the reality is that we can't always just seek that. That to understand that it is God book, but yet humans wrote it, it means we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to work through this, but yet there is some work that we have to do. It's not just always going to wash over us like this little kid doing that. And so that's going to be what we're going to look at over the next few months, or some of those passages that we might look at and go, like, what is, what is the point of this? What could God 
be doing through these stories. And we're going to be teaching a few strategies on how to read these things. And sometimes it'll look a little bit more like a class than like you're used to. It won't be like this fired up, now I'm ready to take on my week. It'll be like, I'm fired up, now I'm ready to understand my Bible. And so today, now that we have that understanding, find your way to Genesis chapter 21. And I want to show you a really obscure story, an obscure story that's often skipped. Even some of the scholars, some of the commentators who are writing on Abraham and Sarah's life, they'll skip this, make a little comment about it. And we're going to look at what God has to say. We're going to look at an obscure passage. And if you remember much of Abraham's story as we've been following through their life, then you'll remember that there was a time in which God had promised that they would have a child, Abraham and Sarah, but they were getting a little impatient. They were working their way up into the 80s and 90s, and they didn't believe that God was actually going to provide a son in that way. And so Sarah, out of her impatience, she had Abraham marry her slave, Hagar, And the result was that Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. And then, of course, what happened later is Isaac, their son that God promised them, was born after all, after they already had this son. And it was a few weeks ago that Nick taught on this little party that they threw for Isaac and just all that this promised child meant. Um, But it's in verse 8 that we're going to read where this is immediately after that. And so they have this son, Ishmael, and now they have this son, Isaac, who God promised And we have this unique little story, beginning in verse 8. It says this. It says, The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast, had a party. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Right? He loved Ishmael. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So God's promising, Don't worry, I will take care of him. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Okay. So, right here, Ishmael is probably like, you know, a preteen at this stage, 12 or 13. Isaac is probably like 2 or like a toddler age. And Ishmael is doing what middle school boys do. He's making fun of his brother. Um, and Sarah, who's already mad at Hagar for kind of rubbing it in before that Hagar had a child and Sarah was still unable to. This is like the last straw with Ishmael mocking her son. Um, And even though that kid, Ishmael, was her idea, she wanted Ishmael out of there. And if you continue to read the rest of the story, um, one of the things you'll see is that God does care for Hagar and Ishmael. Um, When they sent them out, God has a plan to protect and to provide for them in the desert. Um, And if you read that next story, um, that's immediately after that, you'll see Hagar settle somewhere in the desert, and God provides, and he gives water and everything. And if you wanted to look into that, you'll find that it's actually where Hagar and Ishmael settled. That is now modern-day Mecca in Saudi Arabia, and it's the reason that Mecca is such a holy place and is in Islamic faith is because they were cared for in that place, Ishmael and Hagar. And so, as we've looked through the story of Abraham and Sarah, we've seen all these stories with all this rich meaning, and then we get to a story like this, and we wonder, like, okay, what's the purpose of this story? Is it just to give us a bit of history of why, like, Jews and Muslims don't get along that well, or what exactly 
is here. Like reading this, of Abraham sending out Hagar and Ishmael, did that give you the tingly winglies? You feel like you've got the, you know, the worship thing going on right now? No, you're probably a little confused. Um, but I, you probably have the sense that there's more to the story than just a bit of like cranky lady sending out this other kid. Um, and if you have a feeling that there's more to this story, then you're right. Um, but this is a difficult chapter. Um, we've, we've already established all scriptures God breathed, every line, even this one, that doesn't seem to make sense. And so, in order to figure out what it means, um, tell me if I'm way off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you to understand this passage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach this little story that we just read of them sending off Hagar. And tell me if I'm way off in my methods or in essentially what I say. Um, because what I'm going to suggest is I want you to um, think of this story as figurative. It's just an allegory. Um, Hagar, the slave woman, she represents people who don't believe in Jesus, who think you can be saved um, by being a good person, by the works of the law, um, because she's a slave, right? The law. Um, and so just like under the old covenant, people were slaves to the law. She represents that. Um, and for those of you who do believe in Jesus, okay, well, you know, you're Sarah in this story. She's free, you know, just like we're free in Christ. Um, you're the promised son, right? Um, God blessed her like he's blessed you and now you get to live a joyful life um free from legalism and whenever um legalism or whenever the law tries to come in you need to kick the law out you need to send it out and say nope i'm not going to live under the law right send it away what do you think of that does that is that kind of how we'd read the bible is that go against anything that are your instincts it's what? It's a little off. Maybe it's a bit of a stretch. Like if I say, okay, you're Sarah and his others is Hagar. Seems like a bit of a stretch. Like I'm trying to fit something in just to give some meaning. Okay. Like I should probably pull out like the uh, Greek lexicon. So I should probably get some historical grammatical context in here to teach you what it means. Right? That's what we should do. That's what I usually do. Okay. Well... Find your way to Galatians chapter 4 with me, okay? Do we have to do, every single time, with difficult stories, do we have to bring out the driver and Briggs lexicon? Do we have to bring out the commentaries, figure out what exactly was happening historically, grammatically in this place? Maybe we can look at other places in Scripture to help us out. So find your way to Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to help us out here. So Paul, um, he was having some issues in the church of Galatia with this group of people called the Judaizers um, who were teaching that because Jesus was a Jew, Christianity is kind of a Jewish thing, so you need to continue to follow all those rules, all those laws. They were big on circumcision, all about that, big on celebrating all the feasts and those things, and they basically taught that you cannot be a Christian if you do not continue to follow the Mosaic law, all the religious practices from the Old Testament. And so Paul, he's going to teach here, starting in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, right, because it was their idea, but his son by the free woman, which is Sarah, was born as a result of divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children 
who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who were never in labor, because, the more, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son was born according to the flesh, persecuted the son who was born by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? He was mocking. And it is the same now. But what does Scripture say? It says, get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. That kind of throws us for a loop, huh? It almost seems like Paul is, inter- is kind of stretching things a bit. Because Paul says here that this is an allegory for the works of the law and the works of the flesh. And if you read the book of Galatians, you'll see that it's all about grace and the law. Right? It's all about Paul teaching that this group, the Judaizers, who were trying to put the religious law on people, that this is the way that you're saved. He's saying, no, no, no. You don't get saved by these things. He's saying you're saved by faith in Christ. You're saved by grace through faith alone. And Paul says this over and over again. In Galatians 3, he uses some strong language for people who are saying that you need to be circumcised to be a Christian. He says, you foolish Galatians. He's saying, don't return to the law. Don't return to the flesh. You are free in Christ, Paul is saying. That you cannot seek to earn your salvation through these works, through these different practices, says you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's it. And so in order to teach this lesson to the Galatians, he refers to the story from Genesis 21 that we read. Paul appeals to this weird little story where Ishmael was sent out and where Isaac was kept there. And he says, if you've received the gospel in faith, then you and I are in the position of Isaac. Right? Children of the heavenly Jerusalem, he says. And Paul says that these things are to be taken figuratively. And in the ESV, it says this is to be interpreted allegorically. Right? Now, honestly, I mean, how many people kind of have the understanding or have been taught, like, you're not really allowed to allegorize the Old Testament? This is not how you read it. I've kind of been taught that. And I believe that in a lot of different places. But so if you're surprised by Paul interpreting this story allegorically, then let me welcome you to our next sermon series. Um, Let me welcome you to this next season of stories that we'll be going through, um, where some of these things that we love to skip, um, some of these things that don't really make a lot of sense. Um, I feel like the crazy guy from Jurassic Park who's like, yeah, look at this. This Isn't this awesome? Um, But now I'm finding, as I'm trying to study some of these stories, there's a reason uh, a lot of churches skip these passages. Uh, But this is what I want to look at. I want to look at these passages that often we'll avoid or ignore because they seem to just confuse us. Um, Because, one, to look at the Old Testament as allegory just seems to go against, like, everything we've ever been taught, right? Oh, this seems wrong. If I'm going to defend biblical inerrancy, I feel like I have to get rid of that idea, right? Oh, that feels like it's encroaching. Is this really how we can read the Bible? Um, It seems like if we're going to start allegorizing things, it's like we're going to start careening out of control, like you're going to just start coming up with all kinds of weird theology, right? Which probably is true. Um, But the reality is that in the New Testament, 
You're going to see Peter. You're going to see Paul. You're even going to see Jesus interpret the Old Testament like this all the time, all throughout. You've heard of um, the flood with Noah, Noah's Ark, right? You've heard of that story. Um, with my methods and kind of my understanding, I would typically say that, well, the flood narrative, the story of Noah's Ark, it's about God's judgment on sin and his mercy on humanity, right? He saved Noah and his family, and he judged the rest of the world. But then Peter, Peter says that Noah's flood is an allegory for baptism. One place. Doesn't really make any sense. Um, I would say that Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve sinning, right? The fall. It's the story of how sin entered the world of why humanity is so fallen, so twisted. And then Paul says that we can actually read it in a way that, that shows that Adam was a type of Jesus, and Adam was showing us, actually, a picture of who Jesus is going to be, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of what Adam was supposed to do. Adam failed his job, and Jesus is going to come and fulfill it. Right? And all throughout, we're going to see the New Testament authors, they allegorize things, they teach in this way. And this is because, as we already kind of established earlier, the Bible, it's a God book. It's divine, given to us by the Holy Spirit. But it was written by humans. We know that. And here's actually what it's about. So if we understand that, right? Like, we have to listen to the Holy Spirit, but we also have to put some work in. Well, what the Bible is about is it's about God, but yet it tells all these stories about humans and what we're doing. And I think the fundamental thing that we have to understand in order to read the Bible is that the Bible, it's a God book written by humans, and it's about the God who became human. Right? And that's what Paul does here with the allegory. That's what all the other New Testament writers do whenever they allegorize things, is they point out that the entire Bible is about Jesus. And so sometimes the allegories seem like quite a bit of a stretch, And we're wondering, okay, what are the rules? Like, where are the breaks on this thing to wonder, like, when is it going too far? And one of the things that we see from the ways that they look at it figuratively is, well, the allegories should match what is said about Jesus. They should be about Jesus because the Bible is this unified story that leads to Jesus. And so that's how Paul is able to get away with this. That's why the Holy Spirit led some of the New Testament authors to allegorize these stories, is every time they do, they're pointing out something about Jesus, right? They're pointing out that the purpose of some of these stories is to say something about Jesus. Now, the problem with the ways that we often want to allegorize things is we often want to make the allegory about ourselves or about our own life, right? And frankly, this is kind of what's taught by pastors all the time. I've probably taught this at some point, where instead we just ask, well, you know, read this and consider, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you, Justin? How does this connect to you? And so if we were to make the allegory about ourselves, that's when you can get into some weird places, right? If I were to say, well, you know, we can take this story figuratively, and we can look at the slave woman, we can look at the free woman, um, and the slave woman, you know, she obviously, um, she could represent someone coming in here and saying, you know, Evan is really not the best um, preacher in the world, um, which no one would probably argue with her if you did that. Um, but if somebody does that, then what we need to do like Sarah is say, get out of here. Um, and just kick everybody out who disagrees with me. You know, because, you know, you can see figuratively, send that lady out of there. And that would be out of bounds because how is that about Jesus? <laughs> That's about my ego, 
not about anything that Jesus has done, not about who Jesus is. And so we can't allegorize things about ourselves. The entire Bible is about Christ. It's a God book written by humans about the God who became human. And the whole thing is going to point to him. It's going to point to him because the Bible's purpose is to point to Jesus. And I think the reason that we can't just open it up and just determine what it means by the first thing that comes to our mind, by the first thing that it seems to mean, is because even though the Bible was written for us, we have to recognize it wasn't written to us. Right? That God is speaking to us by the Bible. He speaks to us. But like Galatians, it was, that message was given to Paul for his specific pastoral situation, and he was passing it off to these Galatians who were dealing with a specific situation. And so we have to figure out what did it mean to them, and that's what it's meaning to us, not the other way around. And many of us, um, we've probably been taught to always ask you know, that question. What does it mean to us? Like we can just kind of determine that. Um, and sorry I popped your balloon, if that's kind of the way you've been taught um, to read the Bible, but please don't freak out, because I promise this doesn't mean then that you're going to have to go invest in like a $300 um, textbook that's going to help you read it. You don't have to know everything about Israelite society. As we see with this story from Genesis, all you had to know was what's already accessible in the book of Galatians, right? And just the basics of how we're saved, okay? Hey, we're saved by grace through faith. That's it. Okay, so Paul is teaching this. That's how he's able to connect the allegory, right? And so the way that oftentimes we're taught to read it, we're just like, okay, the plain meaning, that's got to be what it means. We kind of have to pop that bubble because it wasn't written to us. It was written to these people who have a very different cultural understanding. They live in a very different world. Reading the Bible is often like hopping in a plane and flying to the Middle East 2,000 years ago. So we're going to kind of have to adjust our thinking to their culture. And so we kind of have to pop the balloon that says, like, yeah, we can just read it. Whatever the first thing that comes to mind is, that's what it says. Don't just read the Bible instinctually. That's how cults get started. Please don't start any cults. But also, some of the tendencies that people have then is instead of just going right to, oh, this makes perfect sense, I know what it means, um, we kind of lean into a bit of the postmodern way of thinking where, like, you can't really know anything. And so I hear it all too often. I have so many friends who, you know, out of their humility, they go, well, you know, we can't really know what it's about. We can't really know anything. So let's just go around and, and just, you tell me what it means to you because nobody can really know. We just can't know anything. And I'm so humble for saying that. Am I not? I'm so humble for not knowing anything. And it's like, no, that's not humility. That's like ignorance and just being lazy. And so don't do that because God is revealing himself to us. And the purpose of this is to reveal Christ to us. So we can figure it out. So don't do those two things. Because essentially, as we consider what the Bible is, the Bible is God's revelation to us of who Jesus is. Right? That's the whole purpose of the Bible. God revealing himself to us. And so when we read these words, and we read those kind of confusing things, in one way or another, either historically, this is going to lead to who Jesus is, either figuratively, this is going to connect to something he's done, or there can be these kind of images or types that match with what Jesus is all about or what he's done. Because you see, it was in John chapter 5 
Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees. And they weren't going to follow Jesus. They were not willing to submit to him. And so he's calling them out. He's saying, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying the primary purpose the Bible exists is to point to me. And you know, the Pharisees, they were really into studying it. They could tell you what the middle letter of the Old Testament was. They knew all the fun trivia facts about it, but they missed the fact that it was about Jesus. They weren't willing to follow him. And so in that same conversation, Jesus says in verse 46, for if you believed Moses, which they did, they claimed to at least, said you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses wrote the book of Genesis that we just read. Jesus is saying he was writing not just about those stories. He was writing about me. He was writing about me. And this is how Paul is able to say that you can read this allegorically. You can take this figuratively. Because the purpose of the Bible is to point to Jesus here. It's to point to him. And so just a bit on what he's doing here. Just a bit on this whole idea of allegory. Because I know that word is going to freak us out when we connect it to God's word. Um, But an allegory, an allegory is just a story serving a purpose or containing a hidden meaning. So cast out the slave woman, child of the free woman. It's a story that tells a story. Now just because something is allegory doesn't mean it didn't happen. This isn't saying that it didn't really happen, it's just fiction. But this is saying that there's more to the events than meets the eye. But these events serve a purpose, serve a purpose to teach us something. And in this case, it's that law persecutes grace, right? That those under the law, they're mad at those who are free. And so like Ishmael's mocking, that's what was happening for the Galatians. And so the allegory that Paul's saying is, cast out the law, cast out the legalism, cast out those regulations that they were trying to put on these Christians to tell them you have to do this to be saved. And so Paul is saying, Don't live with that kind of thinking. Don't live with that kind of theology, right? Be like a cranky Sarah where you don't put up with it. Send it away. Send it away. It says it's one or the other. So do you kind of see that allegory there? How Paul's able to make that connection? Because that's about who Jesus is and what he's done. It's this deep truth that scripture teaches, that this story has this purpose of showing us that. And we can see that in there. Now, there's another way of kind of using allegory um, that has some blurred lines with allegory, and that's called typology. Um, And so there's this way of also seeing different characters or stories or events in the Old Testament that serve as a picture or a type of something or someone else. And especially what's common in the Old Testament is characters that are a type of Christ. You'll see that. That doesn't mean it's like Jesus reincarnated or anything weird like that. It's just that this person, who was a real person, doing real things in history, God ordained their life to work in such a way that it would tell something about Jesus. And so one of the key ways that we understand some of the difficult stories in the Old Testament is understanding the types, the pictures. This is the idea that the whole Old Testament, it's a picture book of Jesus. And we'll see this in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul was talking about the Exodus, all that happened during the Exodus. All those things really happened, but also, he says in verse 6, that these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things are examples. They're types. This is showing us not to live. 
And in Romans chapter 5, this is Paul talking about how Adam was a type of Jesus. He says, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. And we read kind of in the apex of Abraham and Sarah's life, when he was sacrificing his son Isaac, that there was a ram stuck in the bushes. And instead of sacrificing his son, he had this ram as a sacrifice. And that ram is a type of Christ. It's pointing forward to the day when once again, one would die on our behalf. Once again, there's going to be a sacrifice in place of the one who was about to die. And so this, this is typological interpretation here. It's really not that complicated. It's just considering how does this person point to Christ? How does this story connect to Jesus? And if we understand this, then we'll understand a ton of the really confusing, weird details in the Bible. Where you'll be able to consider, okay, not what does this mean to me in my situation. There's probably a lot of application of what does this mean I need to do. But the base meaning how does this connect to Jesus? How does this point to him? Because that is the entire purpose of this book that we have here. And if we understand these themes, if we understand these types, we'll be able to handle some of those stories that we'll read and just go, well, this is why I never read the Bible, because it's just too confusing to understand. And I'm way too tired of seeing people just falling away from their faith because they don't spend time in God's word, because it's too difficult, because we skip too many of these passages and don't actually teach people how to read these things. Because over and over again, the New Testament is telling us, look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Look for these types. Look for these themes. Look for the allegory. Even just in Abraham and Sarah's life, um, there are other types, and you could spend like a lifetime looking and noticing these things. Just the idea of the barren woman, right? Sarah, obviously, unable to have kids. And then you're going to see that over and over again in the Old Testament. Because after Sarah is Isaac's wife, Rebecca, she is barren as well. Then Hannah, unable to have children. Then Elizabeth, the mother of Samson, unable to have kids until Samson comes around. Samuel, the prophet's mom, barren. Get to the New Testament, John the Baptist's mom, barren for a season. And all of this is pointing to another one who is going to be barren or unable to have kids for a different reason, right? Mary can't really have kids when you're a virgin. And all of that was pointing to how the Savior of the world was going to come from a woman who couldn't have children. It was all pointing to Jesus. And you see these themes throughout the Bible, and it's almost like, how obvious did God have to make it so that people would not miss Jesus? He's putting type and allegory and theme all throughout the Bible over and over and over again. So that once Jesus came, you would have no excuse but to see who he is, and why he's there. And so that's what we have to do with some of these difficult passages, is simply ask, how does this connect to Jesus? How does this point to him? How does it point to Jesus? And I recognize that this is a bit harder to do than just opening it up and thinking, okay, Holy Spirit, help me out, which sometimes there's a place for that. Um, And it's a bit more work than also just saying, well, It's all on me. I just need to open up the commentary and whatever it says, that's good to go. This is a call to leave kind of the instinctual reading and to leave the only critical human book reading aside and a call to wrestle with the text, 
to wrestle with God's word. And this is a call to do that courageous task, to not just give up when it seems difficult, to not just skip when it seems like, well, this isn't really speaking to my situation right now. It's going to be more difficult to do this, but it's the right thing to do. And this is what's going to truly grow us in faith. As we look at the legacy of Abraham and how he followed God and trusted him, this is one of the most important things that we can do to grow in trust, faith, in God. And so at the end of the day, Paul's allegory here, it's got to be front and center. Front and center. Because that's what Genesis 21 is about. And that's what he's teaching us. He's teaching us how to read the Bible here. Um, and he's also reminding us of an important truth that we need to know, even just on this passage. That if you are a believer in Jesus, then you, like Isaac, you're a child of promise. You have been saved by what Jesus did on the cross, by his raising from the dead. And so you're a child of God because of the grace given to you and received by faith. You're not saved because of your scholarship or your study. You're not saved because of how, how good of an experience you have every time you open the Bible. You're saved by him. This is what Paul is saying. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, then what Paul is saying is all that stands between you is not a full understanding and a full grasp of the Bible. You don't have to know all the ins and outs to be saved. All that stands between you and Jesus is believing in your heart and confessing with, with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? Faith boiled all the way down is, I believe in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. That's it. And so all of those other ideas that want to sneak their way in and say, well, you don't understand this passage, so Holy Spirit's probably not in your life. Good luck. Or you're not willing to put the effort. Get rid of that. Send that out. Recognize that we're only saved by what he did. It's a bit of a wrestling match sometimes, but it's the right thing to do. And so, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, let me end with this. He said, again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Right? By believing what you heard. And so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so as we go through some of the difficult stories, some of the weird passages of the Bible, it's going to be fun because some of them are just not going to make any sense. But the overarching call is that call right there. Believe God. Just believe, trust in him. So now let's pray, and we'll turn to God and worship. Father God, um, we just thank you. Um, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Um, we just recognize all the different times in which we often um, try to put our own spin on things. We try to insert our own thoughts and insert our own feelings about who you are into that. And we just ask that you would help us to see who you truly are by who you have defined yourself to be, by who you've identified yourself to be. God, we want to be a people who know you. We want to be a people who trust in you. And so we just ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us to do that. Would you be formed in our hearts? And God, uh, we believe that your word is living and active. We believe that it's God-breathed, that it's profitable to us. And so we repent of so many of the times in which we just cast it aside um, because it was too difficult, because it didn't make sense, because it didn't give us the experience we were looking for. We just repent to that, and we thank you for your grace that even though we make these mistakes, even though we do these things, 
and we're saved by what you've done. And so we thank you. And now, God, empower us to be a people who seek after you. Open our hearts and minds to see you in your word. Give us the energy and the willingness to, to be persistent when it doesn't make sense right away, but to wrestle with this word that you've given us. And so, God, this week, I just pray for Common Ground Church that you would open our eyes to see Jesus. Um, would you show yourself to us in the scriptures? We just think of the disciples who got to spend time with a resurrected Christ, and he opened their minds to see all of that was written about him in the Old Testament. God, help us to see that. We just ask that you do that for us. And we commit to being a people who do our part in that. So we love you. And we just turn to you in praise now. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Should nothing of our efforts stand no legacy serve Unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, the builders strive to
but just as we've sang, all glory be to Christ. As Paul taught, it's not about the works of the law. It's not about these things we do. It's all about Christ. And so would you receive these words from Galatians chapter 3 as a benediction? For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have, been clo- have closed, clothed yourselves with Christ. So now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Common Ground Church, thank you for being here this morning. Grace and peace. Have a wonderful week.